0: And with me, turn this evening to Titus one again, Titus chapter one. I was telling Bob this afternoon, I have a, uh, I had planned to give three weeks over to Titus one five to nine because I think it's a particularly important passage uh, for a church that is searching for a pastor. It's, uh, it's two, uh, it's uh, five verses really given over to how one goes about choosing a pastor. Uh, but since I, uh, I heard this morning that uh, you're going to be entertaining a, uh, a prospective candidate here in another two weeks, thought it would be best if I could just combine those into two and get that done before he arrives. And rather than splitting that, so uh, I uh, scrambled this afternoon to sort of take three and make them into two. So uh, well, that's what our plan is tonight and next Sunday evening, Lord willing. Uh, to look at these five verses, Titus 1, 5 to 9, and in them find God's expectations uh, for a pastor of a church. Let's read together those five verses now that you're there. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. For this reason, I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you would set in order what remains, and to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid game, but rather hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we study here, we continue in our study tonight, uh, this brief letter of Paul to Titus uh, with a theme here of God's expectation for choosing a pastor for the church. I could give more attention to verse five. I'm actually planning perhaps if we have if, uh, if we have time perhaps after uh, the uh, the candidate comes through in two weeks to talk about a little bit perhaps a little bit more of a casual more of a conversation more of a teaching time about uh, who appoints you know it says here it says here Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city which sort of begs for an explanation as to how he's going to go about appointing elders how is the church involved and then secondly uh, the question here of how many elders it says here to appoint elders plural and uh, right now you've got none and you're looking to have one and so uh, we'll, we'll, it's something to talk about but I think more important to the topic uh, for tonight and for next week here before your candidate comes, is to talk about the qualifications here for a pastor. We need to constantly remind ourselves that this is God's church, it's not ours, and God has specific instructions here for choosing a pastor that may not align, perhaps, with what we're looking for in a pastor. Now is not the time for pushing personal preferences and interests or concerns unique to our own particular demographic, whatever that might be, old or young, black or white, rich or poor, male or female, athletic or invalid, those aren't the questions. The primary questions addressed in our passage are not whether the pastor's going to be in my corner when it comes to proposing new programs. It's not whether he's going to use the kinds of technology I use or don't use make me happy it's not whether he and his family have an agreeable appearance whether they share my hobbies whether they cheer for my favorite football team whatever that might be or whether they drive a ford or a chevy or even a kia right now getting a pastor that has some of these qualities is kind of a nice bonus nice icing on the cake if he happens to be. Uh, the things that I prefer here, but these are all secondary to God's primary concerns for his church. In fact, all of the things that I just listed, they don't make the list. And yet often, those are the first questions on our mind, right? But the questions that we have here in front of us are of a different sort. These are God's non-negotiables. I can't stress this enough because our personal preferences and our loyalties run very deep and I'm quite certain that we will all, every one of us, before the process is over, be tempted to measure a pastoral applicant based on questions like the ones we started the service with, which the scriptures say are rather unimportant. Not as, they're, not as though they are of no account, but they're rather unimportant to the greater questions that we have uh, in front of us here in the book of Titus. So since then, we all have a bent towards a measure of, to, to, to measure the suitability of a pastoral candidate according to what God identifies as inconsequential standards, what must be do? Well, we need to self-consciously agree with God as he speaks through the mouth of Paul about what the most important qualities and characteristics are of vital importance to the success of God's church in God's eyes. The fulfillment of God's prescribed and unchanging mission for the church in every stratum of history. And then having agreed with God on these matters, we must rehearse them over and again until after owning them, they become second nature. These are the things we're looking for. We, these are the things we're asking questions about to make sure that what we find is a biblically qualified candidate. So what are the, 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 the characteristics and qualities that God privileges among men who aspire to the pastorate? Well, let's go ahead and start looking at them. The list begins with something of a summary concern. It appears twice in Titus, both in verse six and verse seven, and it's also in First Timothy, 3 verse 10, which is the, uh, his other list of qualifications for the church office. A pastor is to be, above all else, a man who is above reproach. Those are the words, above reproach. The TNIV puts it this way. He has no charge that can be laid against him. And I think that captures, perhaps, the idea. The term is actually a rare one it appears in the scriptures only two times in Colossians 1. We find here in Colossians 1 verse 8 that Christ will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the word guiltless. Okay, so that's what we're looking for. A man who is guiltless. Verse 22 speaks again of this word uh, of, uh, in Colossians 1. Christ has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here the word described is blameless. Guiltless, blameless, above reproach. Now I rarely bring my Greek into the pulpit, but in in this case, it's actually a little fascinating uh, bit of of, uh, work that can be done here. Uh, Again, you don't typically find the meaning of a word in its etymological roots, words have a tendency to drift away from their etymology over time. But when you have a word that's used only rarely in the scriptures, uh, it's a word that sometimes is a tool that we use. And the word used here and in Colossians is a state of settled virtue that marks a believer who is qualified for heaven. Literally, we could translate this word able to be called up, okay? ready to be called up. That's the fundamental meaning of the term. The literal nuance of this adjective appears in a noun form in Philippians 3.14. It's a familiar verse here. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. This is the same term, except not as an adjective, but as a noun. Okay? So it's the upward call, and the adjective, the adjective is ready, for the upward call, okay? So this is the same term that we find here in Titus and also in Colossians 1. The great end that Paul anticipates for the Christian walk is that we will be called up, called up to heaven, fitted for heaven. And these several times express hope that he will be, at that point, qualified to go up. That's what we all want to be. We want to come to the end of our life and find that we are qualified to go up. But here's the kicker, Paul expresses this quality now in those who aspire to be a pastor. The term is rather startling to us and seems far too aggressive a term to use for mere mortals. It seems to require perfection, guiltless, blameless, without reproach, it seems like an impossible standard. And sometimes people will look at this and say, having very little guilt, or very little blame, or having scarcely any reproach. But that's not what the word is. It actually says, without reproach, guiltless, blameless. I think the solution to our dilemma is in what Paul is speaking to, not so much as perfection or sinlessness, which can't be achieved in this life, but to his perfect reputation. Now, you say, well, what's the difference? Well, one is a matter of y- y- your whole life, you know, having, having no sin at all. The other is a reputation. That is the record that you have in front of people. Here's the person, that, here's the important thing for us. A person's reputation can always be discovered and measured with a bit of Digging. Are there any charges laid against this man? I okay, that's the question. And so, how do you find out? You ask, right? Not the person himself, but actually the references that they give you, right? And then, perhaps, ask a few people who he doesn't put down as references, but also know him. I mean, that's usually a situation that you're in. You know, he, he's going to put people who are going to give you a good report about him. You know, find some other people that know him. Ask. Is he a person who has charges laid against him? So the guilt here is a liability to punishment that is formal. Is there a court of law, an ecclesiastical order that stands against this man? Because we're looking for not blamelessness in an absolute sense, but for a demonstrable and verifiable reputation. Ask, discover whether this person has any charges levied against him that will hold up under scrutiny. Okay, that's the question. So there's work involved, right? And hopefully your, your, your pulpit committee has been doing a lot of that work, you know? Make sure you call the references. Those aren't just theirs perfunctory things. They're things to be followed up on, ask. What it means for the man is that he has to have a long-standing reputation for purity. In the words of 1 Timothy 3, he can't be a novice. That is a new convert or a man of unproven character. He has to have a record, a character record. It does not necessarily mean he has to be old, but it does mean that he has to have an established record of holiness. Many of you perhaps remember back to the day when you attempted to get your first credit card or perhaps when you first applied for a mortgage, and despite the fact that you'd never failed to meet your financial obligations on time, you've never defaulted on anything, you were actually told that you needed to have somebody co-sign for the loan. It's kind of embarrassing, right? Why? Was it because you had a bad record? No, not in this case. The reason was because you didn't have any record at all. They didn't know about your risk level. You might be a good risk. You might not be. Nobody knows. And that's exactly what we have here. For a man to be worthy of the pastorate, he needs not to have an extensive or flawless credit record, although that's a good too. <laughs> but an extensive and flawless character record because without it, we don't know the risk level. So what does it mean here for us, the church, and for the pulpit committee? Well, it means that we need to be extremely thorough in our examination of each candidate's character. We must, on a very basic level, do background checks at every level for things that might be hiding. It means that we need to follow up on references, and more, we need to discover other people uh, who know him well, but perhaps has not, he has not given on his resume. We need to find, is, is there an outstanding charge that has been levied against this man which from which he has not been thoroughly acquitted. He must be above reproach, guiltless, free from legitimate accusation and worthy of being called up. That's the summary. Basically everything else falls underneath that summary requirement. This is the primary summary qualification. It leads the list both here in Titus and also in Timothy. This is the first, this is the first thing because there's a sense, there's a sense in which it's the only qualification. Because if he gets this right, all the rest of them fall in line. But the list continues because Paul wants to add some specificity to this very most basic qualification, identifying specific aspects of life and character to which we're supposed to pay special attention when we are examining a potential pastor. And what we want to look at tonight is that sphere of life that Paul finds to be next most important or in, in a way, we could say the first most important, the very most important thing that falls under being blameless. In what areas does he need to be blameless? Number one on the list, his relationship to his wife and to his family. And that's because, as Paul describes back in 1 Timothy 3, a pastor's relationship to his family is a microcosm of his relationship with the church. What what do we find there in 1 Timothy 3? If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he possibly ever care for the church of God? Because what you see in his care of his family is going to translate into his care of the church. Now, the pastor's management of his household, of course, can have many identifiable characteristics. It can have a financial aspect. You, know, you probably do want to find out whether fellows hopelessly in debt. It has an administrative aspect, you might want to see if they're organized, prepared for the services, punctual. It has a didactic aspect. Are mom and dad discipling and discipline the children? So on and so forth. And all of these aspects of family life are worthy of our examination, but Paul is most concerned about two critical aspects of life that he identifies. So we can look at any number of areas, but there's two that Paul fingers as most important. First, Paul says, the pastor must be absolutely guiltless in the sphere of sexual purity. This is the first sphere of guiltlessness on both of Paul's lists, both here in Titus, and also in Timothy and I think for that reason should be understood as the most important item on the list. The pastor must be quite literally a one-woman man. A one-woman man. This phrase is actually very rare, and it has been debated over the years. Several implications of this term emerge. Some of them are incidental, but some of them I think are more load-bearing. I want to explore them this evening. There can no, be no doubt that the primary meaning that Paul intends is that the man must have a record of sexual purity. But let's look at all that this word includes. It's actually a single word in Greek. First, that Paul requires a one woman man necessarily means that the pastor is in fact a man. Okay, you know, perhaps in the in this particular congregation, That's not really a question. But I think it still needs to be said. There's an implication here that he has to be a man. Uh, The phrase is a very specific one. It cannot be reversed oppositely to be a one-man woman or a one-spouse spouse. spouse. That's not what's there. It's a one-woman man. In fact, if we look at the rest of the pastoral epistles, we actually find this to be true. Paul requires that pastors be skilled at teaching, both here and in Timothy, and actually introduces his comments in Timothy by positively prohibiting women to teach men. Okay, So right before we come to 1 Timothy 3, we have 1 Timothy 2, which describes the role of women as opposed to men within the life of the church. So 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is rather to remain quiet. So, obviously Paul cannot simultaneously require and prohibit teaching by women, so the conclusion has to be that only men can be pastors. I know that bothers some out there in the great, big, bad world, and perhaps there's even among you uh, someone here who's just a little aggravated or irritated by that, and uh, and uh, i apologize for that, but the fact is, that is what God expects, and uh, we we simply follow it. There's another implication of this word, one woman man, and that is, I think, a a suggestion, a suggestion, probably an implication, but I don't want to raise this to a level of a requirement, but let let me explain this. Some have made the central understanding here that he has to be married. I think that perhaps is an implication or a suggestion that most pastors, in fact, ought to be married. But I don't know that the text actually requires that pastors be married. It does perhaps assume it, but it doesn't require it. Most critics point out that this qualification for ministry, like the one after it, should be read with an implied if. That is, if he is married, he should be a one-woman man. And if he has kids, the following phrase, they should toe the line. I'm not sure I'm exactly on board with this, but Paul seems to assume, with very few exceptions, that young men should marry and have families. I read an astonishing statistic that the average marrying age for men has risen in just the last 35 years from 23 to 30. The average man does not marry until he's 30 today. That's the average. Divorce is happily on the decline, but only because we have a generation of men who never get married in the first place. Both society in general... And the internet specifically has given, especially to men, a buffet of sexual delights without commitment, without consequence, without guilt, and marriage has become rather unpopular among young men. We're developing into a society of many-woman men who are unmarried, but that does not mean they are not many-women men. And our society simply will not survive this trend very long. And the solution to the problem, in God's order, is monogamous marriage with nuclear families and children. That is the norm that should be valued by all pastors and also practiced by them in all but the rarest of instances. Now, naturally, this comes to mind here that there are exceptions. There are widowers, there are infertile couples that want to have children and can't and such. I'm sensitive to that. Still, I believe that Paul's words assume a high regard for the state of marriage that can't be understated. Thirdly, this term, one woman man, requires the pastor to be a one woman man in the sense that, his marriage, that marriage consists of one man and one woman together for one lifetime. Again, seems in some senses like this should be a duh statement, and, and hopefully, hopefully in this congregation it is. You know. God intends for one man and one woman to be to together for one lifetime. There's absolutely no room in this statement for a two-woman man, whether that's in the sense of polygamy or whether that's in the sense of having a mistress on the side. It does not allow a one-man-man either. Hopefully that becomes clear as well in a homosexual relationship. But further, I think it implies that the pastor cannot have multiple wives in succession either. The requirement does not allow for him to be a a one-woman-at-a-time man. It's a one-woman man. Now, that's not to say they're not legitimate occasions for divorce or remarriage in society. I think there are. They're rare. But it does mean that these unfortunate events represent, at some level, a fundamental breakdown in God's moral order. I want to be sensitive here. I know that divorce is a reality with which people, in, even in this church, live. And at some level, you've all been affected by that. But the pastor, Paul said, is held to a very high standard, higher, I think, than even church membership. He and his wife must be above reproach, free from accusation, charge, or guilt in the matter of marriage. But all three of these implications of the phrase one woman man, as important as they are, and and hopefully we hear them, pale in comparison to the primary function of the phrase, namely, that the pastor must have a rock-solid, impeccable record for absolute fidelity to just one girl. And that's his wife. The end. No exceptions. He can have eyes for, intimacy with, and a sexual relationship with only one person, his wife. No exceptions, whether personal or virtual on the screen, there is no offense on this list that is more destructive to the church than this one. And no, not one results more swiftly in the sudden disqualification of a man for ministry than a violation of this most very sacred trust. Last church I was a, an interim at was a church that uh, uh, was reeling, I mean, desperately reeling, because they had lost their pastor because of this issue. Uh, he, he, had, he had had wandering eyes, and he pursued a relationship uh, with, a, with a woman, actually, in the church. It was just devastating for the church. It almost led to the destruction of the church. It took months and months of healing. Really, the healing is not complete, uh, even now, a couple of years later. It was a devastating thing and if there is any hint that you see or, uh, or or find in someone that is not a one-woman man, run the other direction, flee. This can't happen in the church of God. It happens all too often, but it can't happen. So to that end, I propose that you must leave no stone unturned in this area in your church for a new pastor. It's a primary Consideration, and hopefully behind closed doors some very blunt questions are being asked. Okay. I understand that some of these questions are sensitive, probably aren't appropriate for consumption in, 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 in whole church context, but the question needs to be asked, and very bluntly and very carefully. And These are the questions that you also need to ask uh, with respect to the references that they give as well. And that, that, the idea is that we want to have someone who's trustworthy. We're not looking for a man who must, we, we need to hobble or somehow prevent from doing anything in the life of the church, always be suspicious of him or skeptical of him. Rather, we're looking for a man who has a reputation and a commitment to faithfulness, accountability, who has taken the appropriate precautions and counseling, online settings, and above all, has a sturdy relationship with his wife that leaves no occasion for infidelity or any suspicion of it. This is what we must discover for Ambassador Baptist Church. That man is out there. By God's grace, I hope you find him. That's the first of the critical concerns that Paul has. Then he gives a second one, also relative to his family life. And that is his children. The deportment of his children. Children. Now, like the previous point, there's no absolute statement that a pastor must have children, particularly if you're bringing someone who's older, whose children are grown, but it does seem to be a fairly strong assumption that the pastor has children. Um, either has, have, had, has had children or will have children, uh, but they, the children then become part of our scrutiny as well, and that's very difficult. And, be kind to them. You recognize if they've got little ones, sometimes they're a little bit uh, impulsive, a little bit difficult to predict. Nonetheless, there are certain things, and I think Paul's careful to explain what to look for, not looking for perfection. You know, They don't have to sit tidily in a row and absolutely never say a peep. Uh, but there are some things that can be looked for. And let's see if we can't look at that one. The phrase here that's used is actually an interesting one. It says here in the text you have in front of you, if you're using the New American Standard, is having children who believe. There's some doubt as to how to translate that word. In fact, if you uh, look at a a couple of other translations, for instance, you'll find here uh, that uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a very trustworthy translation, translates it this way, the pastor's children have to be faithful children. New English translation likewise reads that a pastor must have faithful children who can't be charged with dissipation or rebellion. Similar readings you'll find in the marginal notes of the ESV and the NIV. So we've got a translation question here. How do we translate this? Does this mean that the children have to be believers or faithful in their deportment? Okay, so that's the question. So the word here, translated by some as a believer and others as a faithful person, is an adjective that can be translated both ways. And as we look throughout our Bibles, it can be translated either way. So the dictionary is not really much help because both, word, both translations are legitimate translations of this word. So it leaves us in a situation where we need to appeal to the whole testimony of scripture and theology. And I think it's here that our, our answer emerges. Uh, the reading that requires a pastor's children to be, to be believers, I think, suffers from three deficiencies. Read the well, let me let me uh, point these out. First, is theological. Uh, put simply, no one can guarantee the salvation of their children. it Can't be done. There are, I believe, certain moral qualities and habits that, through careful and consistent instruction, discipline, and mentoring, can be all but guaranteed in children. We can come back to that in a minute. But salvation is strictly a work of God. No one can ensure that his children are saved, much as we would love to be able to do that. We can't ensure that. As the Apostle John says in John 1.13, regeneration is not of blood, that is, it's not of genetic or hereditary things, it's not of the will of any man, but of God's elective prerogative alone find it difficult, not impossible, but difficult to see Paul requiring a pastor to do or to be something that he's incapable of being or doing in order to qualify for pastoral ministry. Okay, that's our first one. You might not be convinced yet, but let's keep going. Second reason why I think we uh, should, should re- reject the idea that their children have to be believers is contextual. In this list, every other item has to do with a pastor's character or skills, Qualities that he has honed and cultivated in the service of God and of Christ. And a requirement that has nothing to do with character or skill, but God alone doesn't seem to fit the list. Third, I think, is practical. Requiring a pastor to have only believing children would require that he wait until all of his children pass some undefined age of accountability. And if he should happen to have any more, he'd have to step down until the children become believers. So no parent of young children could be a pastor. I think if you put all these together, theological and practical, I think this suggests here that the reading should be that uh, the pastor's children be marked by faithful deportment. That's the idea here of the word. They are to be children of faith or children of faithfulness? That is, faithful deportment. That's the question. And I think the implication here is that they need to effectively toe the line in terms of their behavior. As such, the rest of the verse, which requires that pastor's children not be accused of dissipation or of rebellion, or, in other translations, not be accused of debauchery or insubordination is not a separate requirement but actually explains what is meant they have to have faithful deportment that is they can't be accused of or known within the community as children marked by debauchery dissipation or rebellion let's look at those two terms first this term dissipation or debauchery it's a rare term again Used in Scripture only four times. Once as a description of sins produced by drunkenness, and once rather famously to describe the behavior of the prodigal son who wasted his father's inheritance on riotous living. Same word here. The term brings to mind wild, out of control parties marked by sensual behavior, carousing, and often the abuse of alcohol. Okay? So if pastor or a potential pastor has a child who is marked by this kind of behavior, then the, the man aspiring to be pastor is disqualified. The second term here, rebellion, or in other translations, insubordination, is only used one other time in scripture. That's in 1 Timothy 1, 1.9, where Paul describes the law as being designed for the insubordinate Which God goes on to give? Paul goes on to give examples of the behavior. Here are the vices: killing one's parents, which I suppose would disqualify a parent; murder, adultery, perversion, and slave trading. So, so the so the the list these these two items here are extreme lists. It's it's not as though someone is disqualified because you know the kid said a peep during the uh, during the church service, or even you know you know, called out or, you know, scribbled really hard. And, you know, don't be looking that closely. Poor wife and kids. Uh, but do observe whether the kids are towing the line. If a, if, if a man loses control of his children, that's the idea, that a man loses control of his children, then likely he's going to lose control of the church. Okay, so that's, that's the implication here. Okay. So the pastor's children need to be submissive, that is, they need to be respectful, under control, disciplined, not silent, not immobile, but when they're told what to do, they do it. Okay. Again, Paul tells us why, because if the pastor doesn't know how to manage those living within his house, how can he manage those who are in his church? which brings us then full circle to our introduction. The pastor's relationship with his wife and his children is a microcosm of how he's going to handle the church. So what then shall we say to these very sobering qualifications, violations of which have left many churches over the years in shambles because they have been careless with respect to these? Well, we've already made much of the fact that we here at Ambassador Baptist Church must give all diligence in our search for a new man. But I'd like to actually sort of close with, a, with a, perhaps a twist, a little bit of an observation here. With the exception of the one skill set of teaching and evangelism, every item on this list and every item on the list in 1 Timothy 3 is in fact a character quality. These are character qualities that are achievable by every person in this room. They're character qualities that are achievable by every person in this room. So why do we have such a rigorous list? Well, because the pastor needs to be a master already of character qualities they expect from all of us, right? He expects these things from all of us. So let's forget, just for a moment here, the fact that you're asking these questions of a pastor and ask them of ourselves. They're within our reach. They're goals that we should have, each one of us. How are you doing with these requirements, men especially? Are you a one woman man, both physically and virtually? While I've made a point here about the term not meaning one man woman, I'll ask the same question nonetheless of the ladies here. Are you a one man woman? Both in the bedroom and in your thoughts. Teenagers, single folks here. Of course, (laughs) I'm a no woman man. Or I'm a no man woman, I don't have any yet. Both uh, and uh, And I say, I hope so. I hope so, but I'm not so naive as to imagine that there's temptations out there that allow you to be a multiple woman man, or a multiple man woman, that are available as close as a click away. You don't have to be married to violate this qualification. So if there is a problem here that's going on, stop it now. Confess your sins to God. Resolve today to start afresh, building that long-term reputation for fidelity in every area, but especially this one. Because no sin can blow apart a life or a family, a marriage, a church, more than this one. Mom, Dad, are you in charge at your home? Are you losing control what about you? I know this was for the older folks here, but let's not forget that children here are also moral agents from the oldest to the youngest. So whether or not mom and dad are dropping the ball, focus on this. Are you a faithful child? Are you being obedient? Are you pursuing after these things that will result in in your salvation. So there's no exceptions. Just because you're a child, there's a judgment seat awaiting for everyone. Now, did I miss anybody? I hope not. I was trying to shoot with a, you know, a broad shotgun here. Because it's not just a pastor who can shatter a family or who can shatter a church with sins of this nature. It can be any of us. And so, may the Lord grant each one of us to aspire for these lofty ideals, not only for the man in the pulpit, but for every single one of us who sits in the pews week by week. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace. Lord, we thank you that even though we may have failed in any one of these areas, and you know, it's possible that there are several here who are beating themselves up, even right now, because there has been a failure whether that's been recent or some time ago and it eats away at the soul. Lord, I ask that tonight there will be a, an earnest confession of sin and failure and a recognition that forgiveness comes from you. That forgiveness is there and I can tonight, right now, start afresh to build that reputation for being above reproach. And I ask that each person in this room would aspire to that, even as we look for a man to fill the pulpit who is already qualified in these areas. Lord, I pray pray this, that we might be pleasing to you as a church in all that we say and do. In your name we pray. Amen.